praise the Lord. Always grateful for the leadership of our worship team and our musical worship team, for the way God prepares our hearts uh, to hear his word. Uh, This morning, we're going to be looking at Matthew 5, 1 to 10. Matthew 5, 1 to 10. And I'm going to read these verses, and as I do, I'm going to ask if you would stand. I am reading from uh, the New American Standard, Matthew 5, 1 to 10. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Father, we come into your presence now and we open your word We ask that your spirit would work in power in our midst. Father, we pray that you would build up the broken. Father, that you would strengthen the weary. Lord, that you would give wisdom to those who are seeking you and seeking wisdom. We ask that you would humble the proud. We ask that you would give joy to the sorrowing. Lord, we ask for you to accomplish all that you know you desire to accomplish among us individually and among us as a congregation. We ask you to work in us and cause us to bear much fruit because as we bear fruit, you receive much glory. And it is in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Please be seated. A couple of years ago, I preached... Uh, an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. And this morning I'd like to continue that series. Uh, Specifically do a survey through the first 10 verses of Matthew chapter 5, that section known as the Sermon, or that section known as the Beatitudes. Now some of you are probably thinking, hey, didn't Pastor Justin just preach to us out of this same passage? And you would be right. Last week, he spoke from Matthew 5, 13 to 16 on the disciple being salt and light. Now, obviously, he and I did not coordinate our messages uh, since this morning we're going to be looking at the verses prior to the ones he talked about. So this is uh, Sermon on the Mount, the prequel uh, to last week's message. Um, Before jumping into the Beatitudes, uh, since it has been two years since uh, I'd like, uh, since last time I shared the introduction, I'd like to review that a little bit 
uh, because there are five, um, five uh, perspectives for us to have as we approach the sermon. And I'd like to quickly remind us of those perspectives. The first one is don't dismiss the hard teaching of Jesus as not relevant to you. Don't dismiss these teachings. In the sermon, Jesus is calling his disciples to a radically different, a radically changed, reoriented life. And his teaching is so radical that many scholars and many teachers have tried to explain away or soften the words of Jesus to make them a little more palatable. We must not do that. When we read and prayerfully meditate on this sermon, when we hear it, we must not dismiss it. The sermon is directive. Carefully note the commands. They are not philosophical, they are not theoretical, and they are not hyperbole. We are to obey them. The sermon is descriptive of all who are truly citizens of the kingdom, truly children of the Heavenly Father. If you don't find in this sermon a description of you or a description of who you long to be, you're probably not a child of God. Let me say that again. If you don't find in this sermon a description of you or who it is you long to be, you are probably not a child of our Heavenly Father. And the sermon is diagnostic. As we listen to Jesus in this sermon, we recognize our own spiritual poverty. We grow in a life of repentance and of humble love, worship, and obedience. And the sermon reminds us that we are salt and light, as Pastor Justin so well described last week. The Christian life is not just about personal sanctification and a private morality. It's about being salt and light in a lost world. To these five perspectives, I'd like to add a sixth, and that is the Sermon on the Mount is a unified sermon. Often the sermon is approached more like a New Testament book of Proverbs. We can study the sermon by examining the precious gems verse by verse, looking at the challenging commands and the memorable statements. And a verse-by-verse -verse study of the sermon can be very fruitful, but to make the most of a verse-by-verse -verse study, one must begin by first understanding the sermon as a whole. Remember that Jesus is the best teacher that ever walked on the planet Earth. There has never been, nor will there ever be, anyone who can better form a sermon than Jesus. And so when he has preached a sermon, we should be careful to see how it is that he put it together, where he starts and where he goes and how he finishes. It's difficult to be speaking. I will take 45 minutes to expand on the first few moments of this sermon. And I feel like one man said, like I'm shining a flashlight at the sun, we must take it as a whole. And as I have studied the sermon, I have come to believe that Matthew 5, verse 20 is the key verse. Matthew 5, verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, verse 20. 
Throughout his ministry, Jesus was consistently and constantly addressing two groups of people, those who considered themselves very righteous and therefore blessed of God, and this self-righteous group are usually referred to as scribes and Pharisees. And then the other is the general population who did not imagine themselves to be righteous at all. They looked at the scribes and Pharisees and said, well, I can't be like that, so I must not be able to be blessed. I must not be blessed of God or able to be blessed by God. And in this sermon, Jesus tells both groups that they are wrong. Both groups misunderstand true righteousness. And both groups misunderstand grace. So Jesus will say, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And in this sermon, Jesus turns their world upside down. And if we will listen carefully to what Jesus has to say, he will turn our world upside down. I believe that Jesus' theme in the sermon is true righteousness or heart righteousness. This true righteousness is an inner righteousness. Outward righteousness, true outward righteousness, is simply a reflection of a right heart relationship with God. As I've sought to follow that theme through the sermon, this is the outline that I would suggest. The blessedness of true righteousness, chapter 5, 1 to 10. And that's the introduction uh, to the sermon. And I would suggest that we always ought to be referring back to this as you read and study the rest of the sermon. How does it relate to the introduction? Then the impact of true righteousness, chapter 5, 11 to 20. The heart of true righteousness, chapter 5, 21 to 28. The reward of true righteousness, chapter 6, 1 to 18. The pursuit of true righteousness, 6, 19 to 34. The grace of true righteousness, chapter 7, 1 to 12. <coughs> and finally, the choices of true righteousness, chapter 7, 13 to 29. And this morning, we're going to be reflecting just on the introduction on those first 10 verses, Matthew 5, 1 to 10. And in these verses, we read repeatedly, blessed be, or blessed are. The word blessing shows up constantly, so it's a good idea to have a fair idea of what blessing means. And Jesus speaks of blessing in this passage, uh, using the word to refer to blessing in two dimensions. <coughs> Excuse me. The first is favored by God. To be favored by God is to be blessed. The Beatitudes describe a life lived under the favor of God. And it's not what kind of life earns the favor of God, but what kind of life reflects the favor of God. Because one is living, one is blessed, one is living under the favor of God. The second is human flourishing, to flourish. This is the Greek word uh, that was used in Psalm 1 when they translated the Hebrew text into Greek. They use the same word. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And then listen in verse 3 as he describes what that blessed man looks like. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water 
which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. He will be like a tree, firmly planted. God says, blessing is like looking at a tree, a fruitful tree that is flourishing by a water source. And that's why I've, used, I've chosen this picture to illustrate uh, what it means to flourish. A year ago, I had the opportunity to visit the country of Jordan and actually traveled down to the River Jordan. Now, like Moses, I never got to cross over into the Promised Land, but I did see it. And uh, the Jordan, that's it, a rather narrow river. Uh, and it was particularly dry when I was there. This is actually the, the, the smaller shrubs here are actually green. When I was there, everything was brown except what was by the river. Uh, as we drove down from the heights to the river, it was amazing to see that everything was barren and dry except right by the river, where trees were flourishing and bloom, flowers were blooming. There were no tall trees only dirt and stubble, except by the river. From a great distance, I could tell exactly where the river was and I could trace it because I could look down and not because I could see the water, but because I could see that green ribbon of life that was winding its way through the wilderness as I came down and looked at it. Just as you can see where those trees are, that's where the river is and you can trace it as it meanders along. Because those that are the trees that are near the river were flourishing. Because life by the river. Because there is life by the river. What a picture of the blessed life in the midst of a parched world. So Jesus is not speaking of material flourishing here. This is obvious. When we read the Beatitudes, we are reading the description of Jesus Christ. Jesus was the man most blessed of God the Father, and he did not experience material flourishing. He didn't have a home of his own to lay his head down in at night. He didn't move, he didn't have more than his daily provision of food, only what they could carry with him. And he walked around Galilee in Judea. And only once do we read of him riding on a donkey, and that animal was borrowed. It would take a great perversion of the very account of Jesus' life to make these promised blessings material and physical. And in so doing, we would lose the richness of what God is promising. Jesus is saying, regardless of physical and material circumstances, no matter what we find ourselves, where we find ourselves, in the midst of whatever we find ourselves, there is a certain kind of woman, there is a certain kind of man who is favored by God and who flourishes spiritually, independent of the externals. So it would be appropriate to read the Beatitudes in this way, Favored by God and flourishing are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we could read each of the Beatitudes that way. 
Finally, before we survey the Beatitudes, we must realize that they are intended as a whole to describe the disciple of Jesus Christ. Normally, we approach these as some kind of unattainable, distant ideal, hyperbole. But Jesus' intent is that this describe the life of every disciple because he longs to pour out blessing, his favor, and he longs to see us flourish. Like a diamond has many facets, so each beatitude is to be descriptive of one of those facets of the disciple who is living in right relationship with God and living in such relationship to God that God's life is flowing through us and that life is described in the Beatitudes. They are not commands. They are descriptors of the heart and therefore are diagnostic. At each point at which these are not descriptive of us, they serve diagnostically to reveal a heart that in one way or another is not seeking him, but seeking something else. And so God doesn't want us to deal with our sins at a surface level. I'm sorry I said this or did that. We must do that, but we haven't completed our thought processes and our understanding of God's work until we've said, why did I say that? What's in my heart that motivates me to speak that way? What's in my heart that motivates me to be afraid? What's in my heart that causes me to be angry or lustful or greedy? What's in my heart I'm only acting out what's in my heart. And the Beatitudes allow us diagnostically to better understand what's happening in our own hearts. In fact, the whole sermon does that. And these Beatitudes are descriptors of Jesus Christ. Because the man Jesus walked in perfect fellowship with God the Father, he was the perfect expression of each of the Beatitudes. When we talk about growing in Christ-likeness, we're talking about growing, increasingly living lives characterized by the Beatitudes. As all these descriptors reflect our growing relationship with God, our growing relationship in Christ. And so it's like, like I, I love in all of our gardens, the plants that I really like are the ones that are called perennials. You know, those are the ones that come up whether I do anything or not. Uh, they don't need my help. And my help is limited and questionable, so I love these things, that they just come up every year. And um, every year they pop up and they flourish and they flower. Early in the spring, little green sprouts begin to push up through the dirt. And soon the leaves begin to appear and they grow and finally they're full leaf and full blossom and they're just beautiful. That's that's the way we grow in Christ. And although they look different at every stage, at every stage they evidence that they are full of life and they are full of growth. It's not simply when they're fully grown. It's at every stage. And so as we grow in these ways, it's not simply at the final stage, but it's as we grow through each stage, we can experience the blessing that God promises. The question isn't, are these evidences perfected in us, but are these evidences, these qualities present and growing in us? So this morning, we're not going to be able to do a deep dive into each of the Beatitudes, 
but survey them as a group and understand why Jesus begins the sermon with them. Blessed, flourishing, and favored of God are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The idea here is the spiritually beggarly poor. Spiritually beggarly poor. One so poor that he must depend on the generosity and the grace of another. And that is the core meaning of poor in spirit. Dependence on the generosity and grace of another. The primary meaning here is not related to sin. Although for us it's inseparable from that. But the core meaning is simply desperately dependent completely dependent on the generosity and the grace of another. So if Jesus is the one who reflects the Beatitudes, how is it that Jesus is beggarly poor? Do we think of him as being beggarly poor, poor of spirit? How is Jesus poor of spirit? Listen to John chapter 5, verse 30. And this is only one verse among many in which Jesus says this kind of thing. He says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I can do nothing of my own initiative. I am spiritually poor. I am constantly dependent upon the Father. Jesus was poor in spirit. He lived in that constant dependency. And this poverty of spirit, this constant and complete dependence on the Father is a mark of all who are disciples of Jesus Christ. It is this dependent life that is blessed. And for us as people, sin is inseparably linked to being poor in spirit. It is only the poor in spirit who can enter the kingdom of God. Only the beggarly poverty, only in beggarly poverty by confessing one's absolute need to be saved and believing that Christ alone can save can one become a child of God. But poverty of spirit is not simply the way of entry into the kingdom. It is the way of life in the kingdom. Remember Jesus, his comment was through his whole life, I can do nothing on my own initiative. Everything I do is by the Father's grace. What I hear him say, that's what I say. And that's intended for us as well, for us to live our entire lives dependent, utterly dependent on his presence and on his work in us. And it's not happenstance that Jesus begins the sermon with these words. We must read the entire sermon with these words in mind. He expects obedience to every command. Jesus expects obedience to every command in this sermon. And he knows we, in ourselves, can't do any of it. Do we know that? Do we believe that? Is our life marked by a beggarly dependence on our infinitely gracious God? Blessed, 
are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, flourishing, and favored of God are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What kind of blessing, what kind of mourning is blessed? Not all mourning is blessed. But I would suggest that it is the mourning because the fullness of the rule of God has not yet come. Mourning that the fullness of the rule of God has not yet come. Mourning because of sin and its continued presence here. It's a mourning that flows out of poverty of spirit. And surely this mourning for us is mourning over our sin. Surely we must mourn and repent of our sin. We all have many responses to our personal sin. Justification. <coughs> well, look what they did to me. You can't hold me at fault for what I did. Look what they did. Justification. Minimalization. Well, it's not really all that bad. Didn't impact that many people. Or, <coughs> excuse me, or maybe it's just something that no one else even knows about. We can minimize it. We can deny it. I didn't even do that. <laughs> or we can coddle it. Oh, I really like this sin. That usually goes along with minimization. Yeah, I really like this sin. I want to keep doing it. None of those responses to sin are blessed by God. It's the one who mourns who's blessed and will be comforted. But Jesus didn't commit sin, so how could he be our model for mourning? While God the Father always ruled in his life, he walked in a world where the rule of the Father was rejected, where the rule of the Lord was set aside, and therefore there is much suffering in the world as Jesus walked through it. So Jesus wept by the tomb of his friend Lazarus, and I believe that's as he contemplated the invasion of sin and death into the perfect world that he had created. Jesus lamented over Jerusalem's rejection of God and of all God's prophets. <clears throat> when there was sin in the church or when there was sin in the world, the sin that's so devastated uh, by the, the world that's so devastated by this, by, by this sin, how do we respond? We can respond in many ways. We can be angry. We can be depressed. We can be overwhelmed by the horrible things that are happening in the world. We can be critical and we can be condemning. I'm sure none of you have that problem, but I can, can, I can be critical of sinners. Uh, of course, myself excluded. We can be critical. But the one who is in right relationship with God mourns as Jesus mourned. When we watch the news, when we read the news, do we get angry or do we weep? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. <clears throat> Blessed, flourishing, and favored of God are the gentle, the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is perhaps the most idealized and the least embraced of the Beatitudes. This may be good advice for the millennial kingdom, but we all know it doesn't work here. Look who the people are who sit in the corner offices. 
those who sit in the seats of power in the corporate world, the commanders of our armies, the people we vote into office. We may piously nod at meekness, but as a working model, we most often reject meekness because it simply doesn't work. And we want a philosophy that works. So we don't support meekness in ourselves or others. Doesn't work in the real world. But listen to what Jesus says. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Learn from me to be gentle and meek and you will find rest for your souls. Don't we long for that rest? Then learn of Jesus. Jesus is saying, learn from me here and now in this world. Learn gentleness from me. And Jesus' life defines gentleness. It does not mean weakness. It doesn't mean cowardice. It doesn't mean spinelessness. And it doesn't mean timidity. In fact, it is a courageous word. It means strength under control. Strength under control. It requires deep trust in the sovereignty of God. 1 Peter 2.23, we read these words, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. Strength under control. While suffering, he did not, he uttered no threats. Strength under control. But kept entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. Trust in a sovereign God. Brothers and sisters, where gentleness is not seen in a life, there is no fellowship with Christ. Because if a disciple is in right relationship with Christ, he or she will be growing in gentleness. Brothers, you that are married, would your wife or your children say that you are gentle and meek? Sisters, would those who listen to you talk say that your words reflect gentleness and meekness? Do our posts on social media reflect gentleness and meekness? Blessed, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Verse 6, blessed, flourishing, and favored of God are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And I love uh, Kent Hughes' expanded paraphrase of this verse. Blessed are those who are hungering and thirsting like the starving do for food and the thirsty do for water, for righteousness, righteous living, for they alone will be filled, satisfied completely. Jesus is not talking about a genteel interest in righteousness, a socially acceptable religious practice. 
He is talking about a desperate need that drives all other behavior. A starving man, a woman who is dying of thirst, is driven by that for their very life. So, the one who is driven by seeking a lived-out righteousness is blessed of God. This is a hungering and thirsting for righteous living. I don't believe that Jesus is speaking of the the positional righteousness that belongs to all who are in Christ. Again, I appreciate the words of Kent Hughes. Quote, the root meaning here is determined by by the seven occurrences of righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount that indicates it means a subjective or practiced righteousness. Jesus is talking about a way of being in this world that corresponds with God's coming kingdom. Living as we will in the kingdom, but living that way now. Again, it's the longing for the fullness of the rule of Christ. In the second beatitude, this longing was reflected in mourning. In this beatitude, it results in a desperate reorientation of life. Blessed are those who are hungering and thirsting like the starving do for food and the thirsty do for water, for righteousness, for righteous living, for they alone will be filled, satisfied completely. Verse 7, blessed, flourishing, and favored of God are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. A merciful heart is a compassionate, forgiving heart. This is a significant theme throughout the gospel of Matthew. Matthew 6, 14 and 15, right here in the sermon. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Matthew 9, 13. Go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Matthew 18, 21, 22. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times seven, but 70 times, 77 times. James speaks of this in James chapter 2, verse 13. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Brothers and sisters, mercy, compassion, and forgiveness are always present when a disciple is walking in fellowship with Jesus Christ? Are there those in your life that you are unable or unwilling to forgive, to whom you are unable or unwilling to show mercy? Remember again what Jesus said in 614, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father Forgive your trespasses. 
The connection between a person having received the forgiveness of Jesus and then that person showing forgiveness to others is so close, so inseparable that Jesus says, if you are not forgiving, if you are not showing mercy to others, you haven't yet experienced my forgiveness. You have not yet received mercy from me. As we grow in fellowship with Christ, we, he will enable us to forgive. Brothers and sisters, if there's someone you have not been able to forgive, I urge you to seek out help. I urge you to deal with that. Allow God to work in your heart so that you can, from your heart, forgive. This is not earning the mercy of God. It's reflecting God's mercy. If by his mercy you are in fellowship with Christ, you will reflect that to others. Blessed and flourishing, blessed, flourishing and favored of God are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The idea here is unmixed, like an unmixed metal, pure gold, pure silver. The idea is to be singular in purpose and in worship. That's the purity he's looking for. Often we connect this directly to sexual or moral impurity, and that certainly is included, but it includes far more than that because we can worship idols far beyond those things. There can be very good things that become idols in us. Our, our spouse following Jesus Christ and obeying and being like Christ, that can become an idol. Our children obeying and following God. We can make that a good thing, but we can make it an idol. Serving in the church, it's a good thing, but we can make it an idol. Those are the things, as well as all of the obvious immoral things that can dilute that purity. And Jesus says, it's the pure in heart that will see me. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed, flourishing, and favored of God are the peacemakers. They shall be called sons of God. Isaiah 9, 6, reading of the names of the Messiah, we're told, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of peace. Our Savior is the Prince of Peace, and His disciples are ambassadors of that peace. Peace and peacemaking are characteristic of all who are working in fellowship with the Prince of Peace. And I would suggest that evangelism and disciple making are the primary activities of peacemaking. The lost are without hope because they are at war with God. In Christ, God extends the offer of peace to all who will believe, and he has made us, he has appointed us as his disciples. We are appointed as the bearers of that gospel of peace. In the church, disciple-making is the intentional work of nurturing, growing, and maturing believers' uh, maturity in every disciple. And that growth will result in peace, personal and interpersonal peace.
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed, flourishing, is verse 10. Blessed, flourishing and favored of God are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is the eighth of the Beatitudes, and it is very different than the seven that preceded it. The first seven Beatitudes discuss, describe a disposition of the heart. They are not commands, but descriptions of a life being lived in community with God. But the eighth beatitude is about something that happens to the disciple. This one is about being persecuted for righteousness' sake. This is about happens to us precisely because we are living in this age as citizens of another age. If we forget that bless if we forget that the blessings promised in these passages are not material but blessings but like promises for material wealth or promises for safety if we forget that then this beatitude might seem contradictory note that Jesus does not say that along with all of these wonderful blessings will come persecution that's not what he says persecution is one of the blessings Blessed is the one who has been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. There are things, there are eternal, wonderful, blessed things that God can only do in the life of the disciple in and through persecution. There are ways that God will demonstrate his glory to the nations that will come about only in and through persecution. So I want to ask, when we discuss and pray about persecution around the world and the likelihood of increased persecution here in the States, what is the tone of our conversations? Most often what I hear is fear, bemoaning that somehow we're losing some great thing we've always had and that some horrible thing is about to overtake us. Do we talk as though we are considering a priceless blessing from God? Or do we discuss it with foreboding? Do we rejoice, which incidentally in verse 11 is the only command in all of the Beatitudes, the only command is rejoice when you encounter persecution. Rejoice. Do we rejoice or do we grumble as though our primary response to persecution is to do our best to avoid it? When I was a student at Western, one of my friends spent a couple of summers carrying Bibles into what, is, what was then communist Eastern Europe, and he would typically drop off these uh, these supplies in a home and someone in the home then would take and deliver these Bibles throughout the area and they dropped off to one home where they had been before and the young man in his 20s that had normally done the distribution was not there he had been arrested he was in prison and probably was being tortured uh, but the rest of the family said don't worry please leave the Bibles we'll get them distributed and uh, he said well who will do that and a teenage girl stood up and she said, oh, I'll do it. The sister of the guy in prison. She says, oh, I'll do it. And my friend in shock looked at her and said, aren't you afraid that you will be captured and tortured too? Oh, she replied, if they catch me, I would have reason to rejoice. 
This is not a story, this is true. What a privilege it would be if Jesus would count me worthy to suffer for him. Brothers and sisters, as I look at what the evangelical church is doing, as I listen to what we as an evangelical church are saying, I wonder if we are prepared to rejoice if we should be persecuted. I wonder if we're teaching our children how to rejoice under persecution. Blessed, flourishing, and favored of God are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So this morning we've allowed the word of God to perform a very quick exam of our spiritual condition. The Beatitudes describe the qualities that Jesus says are normal in the life of each of his disciples. They reflect what a life looks like when lived in communion with him, like those trees by the river, flourishing in an otherwise dry and desolate wilderness. Does this describe your life? Poor in spirit, mourning, gentle and meek, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peacemaker, rejoicing in persecution? If the Lord has spoken to your heart about the need to grow in deeper fellowship with him, to grow like one of those trees firmly planted by the River Jordan and to begin to flourish and bear more fruit. If the Lord's talked to you, spoken to your heart this morning, uh, I would ask you to consider two things. One, contact Pastor Jim West through the office. I love to give assignments to other people. We have declared that Calvary Bible Church exists to multiply disciples who glorify God. That's why we exist. We are committed to connecting young disciples with more mature disciples who will be able to walk with them and disciple them. So if you long as a disciple, if you long to, to live as a disciple, as to grow as a disciple that reflects these values, I would encourage you to reach out to Jim who oversees this ministry directly. And he will do what he can to match you up. I would, incidentally, I would also note that we have more men and women seeking to be discipled than we have, uh, stepping forward, than we have discipled men, more, more mature disciples, stepping forward to offer to make disciples. So if, you're, if you've grown in maturity, you feel you'd like to share into the life of another, and you'd like some help on how to do that, you can contact Jim as well. Lastly, I would recommend and suggest this book to you, 10 Questions to Diagnose Your Spiritual Health. 10 Questions to Diagnose Your Spiritual Health by uh, Donald Whitney. 10 Questions to, to uh, Diagnose Your Spiritual Health. If you're getting baptized next week, you've already received one of these books. If you've been baptized in the last year or two, you've gotten one of these books. If you don't have one, I encourage you to reach out, buy this. <clears throat> don't just read it. Walk through it prayerfully and let God minister to you as you mature in your walk with him. Now, it is possible, but highly unlikely, 
that you already fulfill, uh, that you already fully display all the descriptors that we've seen in the Beatitudes this morning. Possible, but not likely. But for the rest of us, let's ask God how these Beatitudes are becoming increasingly true about us. Father, we don't want to be like James describes those who look into the word and they see something and then walk away and forget it. Lord, we pray that each of us would be faithful to take the next step in drawing near to you in walking in fellowship with you in such a way that the Beatitudes increasingly are descriptive of our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.